Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today's show will be on the PCOS diet plan. I think this is going to be a show that you really enjoy. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. If you ask most women with PCOS, they will tell you they frequently crave carbohydrates. And some of them describe themselves as addicted. You know, I'm addicted to carbs. And this is actually part of the whole insulin resistance syndrome. I am Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Organization, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also subscribe to the podcast to get notice of the week's upcoming week's show. Uh, so, And you could just subscribe on whatever app you're using to listen to this show, or you can go, if you're on your computer, just go to our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, uh, and you can uh, subscribe there as well. The ra- this radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring has their green light, IVF green light program, providing discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash paying patients are el- eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. To get more information, you can go to their website, ivfgreenlight.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create their family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. With 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey, RMA New Jersey maintains IVF delivery rates well above the national average. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program, as well as legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation matters. We also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption or an infertility service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us. And we thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about PCOS and dietary and lifestyle changes that you can make that might impact your polycystic ovarian or ovarian or ovary syndrome. Our guests today are Hillary Wright and Dr. Sunita Kulshrestha. 
Hillary Wright is a registered dietitian and director of nutrition counseling for the Domar Center for Mind-Body Health at Boston IVF in Boston, Massachusetts. She is also the author of The PCOS Diet Plan, A Natural Approach to Health for Women with Polycystic Ovary, Ovary Syndrome. We also have Dr. Sunita Kulshrestha. She is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist with Shady Grove Fertility in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Sunita Kulshusta and Hillary Wright to Creating a Family. Thank you. We're going to start off with talking about the medical, just because that's that's where we need to start when we talk about a, a medical uh, syndrome, a disease syndrome. Um, what, Dr. You can tell me I could call you Dr. K, but Dr. I will call K, you. Dr. K, please feel free. Yeah, Everyone okay. does. <laughs> All right, then, Dr. K. What is exactly PCOS, and, and what, more importantly, what are the symptoms? PCOS, um, also known as polycystic ovary syndrome, is actually one of the most common reproductive hormonal imbalances facing women, with up to about 7.5% of women being affected. Um, it is a um, sort of constellation of a variety of different symptoms, but the classic definition is one where women have two of three possible um, diagnostic criteria. Uh, in order to be given the diagnosis of PCOS, women has to have two of the three following, and they are irregular periods and chronic anovulation is one. The second is polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound is the second. And the third is evidence of hyperandrogenism or excess male hormones in the body. And that can be either through blood tests showing elevated male hormones or actually looking at a woman with extra hair growth on her face, such as hirsutism uh, or hair growth in a male pattern. So if a woman can have two of those three, um, she is considered as having polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. And uh, beyond that, there are a variety of other associated symptoms as well. Um, there are lean women who have PCOS. There are obese women. So weight alone is not what we consider diagnostic criteria. Um, there are women who, you know, the classic definition is a woman who weighs 250, 300 pounds, has three, four periods a year, has extra hair growth and a little mustache or chin hair. Uh, but then there's also the lean patient who um, yeah. has no stigmata of, of those that we just spoke about. You know, a question we, we often get is what comes first, the weight or the polycystic ovary syndrome? Uh, it, it's, is it a chicken and egg thing? Because doesn't excess weight and fat cells also contribute to some of what would, um, some of these symptoms? Um, that's an excellent question. The fundamental biochemical abnormality in PCOS is what's called insulin resistance. And insulin is a hormone that is critical in many numerous um, metabolic roles having to do with glucose and growth and in body's metabolism. And with PCOS, women have enough insulin, but their body thinks there isn't enough because it's not functioning the way it should, and that's what insulin resistance is. As a result, the body therefore tries to produce even more insulin, and it's the insulin that therefore can increase the level of male hormones that can therefore act at the ovary, at the skin level. Uh, obesity itself is also associated with insulin resistance. So if a woman 
who uh, is normal weight is compared to an obese woman, a normal woman will have less insulin resistance. So obesity can exacerbate the symptoms of PCOS, but on the flip side, patients with PCOS have a metabolic resistance to losing weight. It's much more easier for a PCOS woman to gain weight compared to women without it, and also harder for her to lose weight. So it's hard to say exactly what comes first, but they kind of go hand in hand, and PCOS can make obesity worse and vice versa. You know, we, we will hear things like, I'm glad you mentioned insulin resistance, but we also can read about terms like metabolic syndrome or prediabetes. How do they play in to, uh, are they one and the same as PCOS? Or are they really totally separate things? Um, it's a spectrum. So in a certain sense, it's the same physiological biochemical abnormality that can occur in a certain sense. An early level is simple insulin resistance, as can be seen with PCOS. As it worsens, insulin resistance can lead to glucose intolerance, um, glucose impairment, and then to an extreme can lead to diabetes. Eventually, diabetes starts with insulin resistance, and then it ends up with insulin deficiency. Uh, now, as far as PCOS, one of the risks of PCOS, apart from issues related to fertility, is that PCOS women are more likely to develop diabetes than age-matched, age, um, weight-matched controls. In fact, up to 7.5% of women with PCOS have borderline glucose levels um, and or diabetes. Gotcha. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the fertility issue. Are women with PCOS, polycystic ovary symptom, syndrome, always subfertile? Not always. And so if we think about the definition of having two of the three factors, the one factor associated with PCOS that can affect fertility is the irregular periods or uh, chronic anovulation, as we call it. So women with PCOS can have infertility related to ovulation dysfunction. So normally a woman who ovulates monthly um, in a timely fashion has about 12 tries a year to try to get pregnant um, in terms of 12 ovulatory uh, episodes. But in women who ovulate three to five to seven times a year, they therefore have fewer opportunities to try to find sperm and, and egg exposure in a timely fashion. The other issue with other women who ovulate regularly is that it's easy to go ahead and monitor ovulation and then time relations so that people can have a greater chance of getting pregnant. When right. a woman doesn't know when she's ovulating, sometimes it's harder to time things. That makes, yeah. <laughs> yes, you've got to have the sperm meet the egg. And if you don't know when the, when the egg is going to be present, it's hard to, um, to, make, your, hard to make your timing. Correct. What type of doctor does a woman need to see if she thinks she may have polycystic ovarian syndrome? It depends if a woman is trying to get pregnant or not. And so if a woman has irregular periods, extra hair growth, issues related to weight, um, then she could start off with a primary care physician or an endocrinologist who can help manage the PCOS. Uh, if a woman is looking to get pregnant, then her best approach is to seek uh, care from an obstetrician gynecologist or a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. Okay. And before we move to talking about kind of the, the, the heart of this show, which is um, dietary and lifestyle changes that might impact uh, PCOS, uh, 
I think we need to talk about what the medical options are for treatment as well. So, and I suspect that this depends again on if the uh, what symptoms are the most troublesome and and if fertility is involved. But well, let me back up a minute because I, I we've talked about fertility, but if a woman is not either doesn't want children or or has already had children or doesn't want them into the fu- in, until in the future. Uh, does she need to worry about PCOS? Is PCOS really basically just a fertility disease or are there other ramifications for it as well? There are other health consequences of PCOS apart from fertility issues. Uh, women with PCOS, as we mentioned, are more likely to develop type 2 diabetes later in life. They're more likely to develop high blood pressure, increased cholesterol levels, um, associated coronary artery disease much later in life, obstructive sleep apnea. And so those are some of the cofactors associated with PCOS. On a practical level also, for women who do not ovulate regularly and do not have periods in a regular fashion, um, they are also more likely to the cells within the uterine lining uh, leading to what's called endometrial hyperplasia or abnormal cells. So women with PCOS are also more likely to develop endometrial cancer if that lining continues to thicken up without shedding in a typical withdrawal bleed. So the important things for women with PCOS who are not interested in children are to make sure that you know she has a regular period. And uh, there is a medication called Provera that can help women have periods um, as long as they're not pregnant. Of course, the most common reason for an irregular period in anyone, whether she has PCOS or not, is pregnancy. So the number one thing is to making sure that she's not pregnant because, again, PCOS women can get pregnant naturally. And Provera is one thing that can help. It's a progesterone withdrawal. The other option to make sure she has regular periods is just having her be on the birth control pill. And that can also allow her to have regular periods. The birth control pill can also help with some of the other things that are associated with PCOS, the signs and symptoms of hyperandrogenism like acne, extra hair growth, and so forth. And then the other thing is if it's a woman who is obese or overweight, weight loss and, and dietary lifestyle changes, as we will be going into later in this, in this talk, are helpful too to help minimize the long-term health impacts that are in, increased risk with PCOS. Gotcha. So there are medical, there are medicines that you can take that will help with the symptoms of, and, and as well as some of the additional complications. But but the ones you've just mentioned, the Provera and the birth control pills, uh, would seem to be counterintuitive for somebody who wants to get pregnant. Are, uh, are there things that uh, a woman who wants to get pregnant can do to control her uh, the symptoms of or the, uh, the, the, the long-term ramifications of PCOS. Correct. Well, for a woman who is actively trying to get pregnant at that time, um, there are means to help her ovulate, and there are medications that can be used for what we call ovulation induction to help her ovulate and then achieve pregnancy. Uh, these medications include clomiphene citrate, an oral agent that's used to help women ovulate, Another medication that's available called letrozole uh, and hormone injections, FSH, and these can be done in conjunction with natural cycles um, and, and uh, intercourse at home or intrauterine inseminations or IVF. 
Um, in terms of other medications, there is also another medication that is used called metformin. Metformin can be used in women who are not trying to get pregnant and women who are trying to get pregnant, and metformin is what's called an insulin sensitizer. And there are other medications in this category as well that allow, again, the insulin resistance to uh, decrease. Okay. All right. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about the PCOS diet plan. Uh, and uh, I wanted to tell you that uh, uh, Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. The first way uh, that uh, you would connect with us would be to our page, which is uh, the uh Create, no, I'm always want to say this. I want to say creating a family. It is not. It is facebook.com slash creating a family. We would love to have you like us on that page. Uh, the second way you can connect with us is on our very active and very large support group. It is a closed group. So you would have to request to be joined. You can get there by create by facebook.com slash groups slash creating a family. Or maybe the easiest way is just go into the search box for Facebook and type creating a family and both the page and the group pop up. You can also connect with me individually, and that is dawn.davenport1. Uh, we also are very active on Pinterest and Twitter, and you can connect with us there. We go by creating a family. So you can just type in that and connect with us there, and we would love to have you join us. Now, Hillary, you believe that diet and lifestyle changes should be a top priority for women with PCOS even if they also need to be on medication. What has the research shown about how effective diet is in improving the symptoms of polycystic ovary syndrome or even maybe curing it? So uh, because PCOS is a a genetic condition, we don't generally talk about curing it. I mean, it's interesting because PCOS is considered what we call a mismatch disease that's kind of a mismatch between our genetic expectations of what life is like and what it really is like in the year, you know, in the 2000s. Um, So when you look at the research, many of the studies that are done on diet and lifestyle with PCOS, the numbers are small, though they're getting bigger, so they are doing some larger studies. Um, What is clear is that if a woman with PCOS is overweight or obese, the most important thing is to try to lose some weight um, through whatever means works for that person. So the, the content of my plan, uh, the PCOS diet plan, is really targeted at managing insulin resistance because insulin resistance as a condition uh, with or without PCOS can actually make it easier to gain weight and harder to lose it. So my experience, you know, after roughly 16 years of counseling, hundreds of women with PCOS, is to learn how to manage the insulin resistance because that increases the likelihood that the weight loss may follow. Um, so it's, it's really, as a culture, we all know we need to learn how to eat less. And by I personally believe by kind of changing the conversation and dressing this up in a different outfit by trying to help my clients understand how to manage insulin resistance as opposed to just lose weight and exercise, which, believe me, these women have heard many, many times before. Um, exactly. Often in a way that's not, not too sensitive. Um, so to really kind of change the dialogue around, let's learn about your physiology and help you manage your insulin resistance, which, by the way, um, is uh, highly likely to um, 
you know, result in some weight loss. And we know that very reasonable amounts of weight loss, you know, as little as 5 to 10% weight loss um, in a woman with PCOS may be enough to make them um, a better responder to assisted reproduction. So, you know, it doesn't need to be my, my BMI has to be under 25. I just say, let's get started to see how we can get you going in the right direction and take it from there. Is there a, a type of food, this may be an overly simplistic question, but is there a type of food that women with polycystic ovary syndrome or insulin resistance crave? Is there something that just because they are insulin resistant or, or PCOS or have PCOS, that there's something their body is is seeking out? Oh, if you ask most women with PCOS, they will tell you they frequently crave carbohydrates. And some of them describe themselves as addicted. You know, I'm addicted to carbs. And this is actually part of the whole insulin resistance syndrome. You know, insulin is a hormone that its main job is to regulate blood sugar levels. But if someone is insulin resistant and their body, you know, becomes accustomed to secreting additional amounts of insulin in an effort to regulate blood sugar, you know, particularly in a setting where we live in an environment where our diets tend to be quite high in carbohydrates and often of the worst type, the refined you know, candy cakes, cookies, ice cream, soda, white flour things. Um, you know, when you're constantly driving up your insulin levels in an effort to regulate your blood sugar, well, insulin's ultimate job is then to lower your blood sugars. And our brain is very, very sensitive to fluctuations in blood sugar. So if your blood sugar goes low, and you know, after eating a lot of carbohydrates, you secrete a lot of insulin, your blood sugar, you know, kind of plummets down, your brain picks up on that and your brain knows what will bring your blood sugars back up. Um, and as I tell my patients, it's not cucumbers and it's not chicken. It is sugar or carbohydrates. So um, many of these women feel hopeless about the weight loss prospect because they feel like they're craving carbs all the time and they mm -hmm. constantly hear that carbs are bad for you. Um, so again, I try to change the dialogue and clarify um, the mess that the whole carbohydrate discussion has become that said it's, a, it's about the two cues. It's the quality of the carbohydrate you're eating and the quantity that you're consuming in any one sitting. So it's not about, you know, just because too much carbohydrate, particularly the refined kind, is not good for you, doesn't mean you take it all out. We try to find the middle and, and go from there. You know, you can't pick up a magazine now without reading about the diet wars, high protein or high complex carbohydrate or low fat or high fat. So what type of diet? is best for a woman who's been diagnosed or believes she has PCOS? So the bulk of the evidence so far, and this would actually, I would support this in my experience, is that a diet that is more moderate in carbohydrates. So again, now, you know, whereas currently the average American diet, you know, the carbohydrate percentage of calories um, could go, go as high as 65%, you know, women with PCOS, Again, we assume some underlying insulin resistance that will be worse if a woman is overweight and sedentary. Um, but the, that carbohydrate number um, ideally would be lower for women with PCOS, you know, maybe 40 to 45%. Um, so again, it's not taking it all out. So many of the fad diets currently are yeah. really over-reducing the carbohydrates. And A, it's unsustainable, and B, it's not healthy. Because if you eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains, you know, as opposed to white flour and too much juice and refined carbohydrates, nutrition quality-wise, they're, they're two totally different foods. So to, in order to be comfortable eating less carbohydrate, 
Um, most women will find they need to eat a little more fat and more protein. Again, it's not high fat, high protein. It's trying to find that middle ground. And in my book, I the first off the first option I outline is what I call a balanced plate. People are very familiar with this, where you know you take a plate. You know, ideally a, a salad plate these days is what dinner plates were when I know when I was a kid. Um, so a smaller plate, line drawn down the middle, instead of half of that plate being a big pile of starch or a big steak, you know, we would ideally cover that with non-starchy vegetables. Have about a quarter of your plate be some sort of a healthy protein, ideally including some plant proteins as well. And then still um, preserving a quarter of that plate for some sort of a nutrient-rich starch, be it brown rice or sweet potatoes or legumes, beans, um, quinoa. You know, so it's again, it's about finding that middle ground where you can go and live there, not go and visit temporarily, because there is no golden ticket at the end of a over-restrictive diet that says, now that you suffered like that, you won't gain the weight back. You know, unless what someone is going to undertake is something that they can live with, you know, permanently, then it's really not worth, you know, depriving yourself and just rebounding several months later. So what you're saying is is a balance of which is not all that different, is it, from what the 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 government's dietary pyramid? They don't even call it a pyramid anymore. What do they call it? Their uh, whatever the the shape is. Choose, it, isn't that choose my plate? Choose the choosemyplate.gov um, yeah. is a much better representation to get people eating this way than the old food pyramid was. Because if you right, remember yeah. the old food pyramid that kind of emerged um, in the wake of the low fat late eighties, early nineties, um, they made the base of the pyramid grains, which in hindsight was not a great idea. Um, so, but the, 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 in our modern culture where carbs, you know, we, we keep vacillating from low to high, low to high. So, um, the fat issue was a, a two cues issue as well. In the end, it turned out to be about the quality of the fat and the quantity. Um, with the carbohydrates, many of the, um, paleo type approaches. And, um, there's another one I read recently about the bulletproof diet plan. You know, they, they over restrict carbohydrates, which ignores the reality that carbohydrates are the primary fuel for the human body. But yes, the reality is we're eating much more than we need, particularly given modern lifestyles and um, lack of needing to till the fields, you know, occupationally. I mean, we, we need to learn how to eat less. So to try to focus in on carbohydrates that are as minimally processed as possible from the grain world and then try to get, you know, as many of our carbs as we can from whole fruits and vegetables and, um, you know, low-fat dairy or full-fat dairy, you know, it's perfectly fine if that's where people choose to spend their calories. Um, but it's really that the choose my plate um, is a balanced plate. It's a very similar um, approach to what the government is now advocating for healthy eating. Is it better to eat the, and my grandmother used to say, you know, three square meals a day and don't snack. Uh, and I, she said that because she thought that that would contribute to gaining weight. So is, is, is my grandmother right? <laughs> three square meals a day, or is it better to spread out our eating throughout the day? So if you start with looking at the data on people who lose weight and keep it off. So we have this big database. It's called the National Weight Control Registry. Where Which is constantly... fascinating, by the way. If, if, if <laughs> anybody's interested, go to they, that is a great website. Um, oh, it's, it's, it's yeah. really neat because it actually takes free living people who are dealing with the world as it exists today who've managed to lose weight and keep it off. 
and keep it off. That's the key. And keep and, it and, off. Yeah. Yeah. And that's entirely different from what happens in a lab setting. You know, that's not real living. But if you look at them and they ask them, how often do you eat? They eat an average of four to five times a day, five times a day being more common. So if you're a woman with PCOS, spreading out your carbohydrates into smaller meals and snacks throughout the day will help to lower your post-meal glucose blood sugar levels, which will help to make your insulin levels roll like hills throughout the day as opposed to spiking and troughing when people go too long without eating and then get over hungry and then overeat. So the way I try to explain this to my clients is if you think of your hunger on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is not hungry, like how we feel right after we complete a meal, and 10 is starving. Research tells us people are more likely to be mindful eaters who can take a moment to think about what am I about to eat, um, can eat at a pace that gives your brain an opportunity to register that you're eating, um, and ultimately eat less if you try to address your hunger when you're about five or six, you know, no more than that. But in our culture, life gets in the way, and frequently we wait to eat until we're like an eight or a ten. And when your hunger gets that extreme, women with PCOS will say, I am hangry, meaning I am hungry, <laughs> I am low energy, and I'm crabby. Um, and mm -hmm. many of them often will say, I actually shake. You know, I am shaking. And what that is, is that is your brain, your central nervous system saying, listen, you've gone too long without eating carbohydrates, which is what we need for fuel. And now I'm getting under fuel. So your central nervous system starts to express itself in those symptoms. When that happens, your primitive cave girl instinct, you know, to go for whatever's fast, as quick, as cheapest, um, that contains carbohydrates is going to come roaring through and now you're going to more than likely eat more carbohydrates that you need that is then going to shoot up your insulin levels and, again, knock them back down again. So to eat in a, you know, again, there may be people who can go breakfast, lunch, and dinner and do fine. In my experience, in our culture, breakfast and lunch are, you know, not too far apart, but lunch to dinner is pretty far apart for a lot of people. And so a well-placed carbohydrate protein snack that, pretty much acts as a mini meal to kind of keep your hunger in control, you know, in the middle of the day when your afternoon hunger is like a five or a six, can make it a lot easier to go home and not eat twice as many calories for dinner as you did at your other meals of the day. Um, they're just starting to study this, and but I've been saying, I've been doing this for over 25 years, she admits. Um, <laughs> people that I've seen that struggle with their weight the most don't eat that much during the day but then it tends to blow up in their face. Again, they're hypoglycemic and starving. They're at, a, at an 8 or a 10 on that scale at about 4 or 5 in the afternoon, and they start eating then, and then they eat a lot of dinner, and they're back in the kitchen at night. There is something about this eating pattern of eating too much later in the day when your body is about to go into slumber mode that, in my experience, encourages weight gain. And we're starting to see some studies popping up here and there looking at not just what you're eating, but your food distribution. How are you spreading it out over the day? Because we now realize that that does indeed affect your physiology, your hormones, your insulin levels, your hunger levels, and that in turn turns, you know, affects what you choose to eat. Well, I probably know your the answer to this, but I'll ask it anyway. I've been reading quite a bit lately on the uh, intermittent fasting and the advantages supposedly of intermittent fasting, and that can take any number of forms. It can be you know, one day a week or it can be making certain that each day you go uh, 16 hours or 13, 14 hours, whatever it is. Um, 
what is your opinion on how intermittent fasting would affect us, either insulin resistance or, or women with PCOS? You know, what's interesting is um, actually right now I'm I'm speaking to you from my job at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston where I work part-time, and this intermittent fasting also comes into the conversation when it comes to cancer risk reduction, um, anti-aging, oh, slowing down yeah. aging. You know, it's kind of in there in a lot of places. It you is. Know, I've certainly read it with the slowing down aging, and I, I guess I have heard about it now that you're saying with fat, uh, cancer as well. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting. You know, I mean, eating is an oxidative function. You know, there are things that um, the body does when we eat. Um, it's interesting. But again, you know, is it sustainable in the long term? Um, I don't worry about healthy people otherwise, you know, fasting here and there. But, you know, again, when people do something to change their energy balance, that's the difference between the calories they consume and the calories they burn. When they do things to change their energy balance, it's the change that's causing the outcome. Not, again, like going through this is going to give you some golden ticket at the end. That means now you can kind of go back to doing what is more comfortable, what you can, uh, what you feel you can routinely, by default, live with. Um, you know, and, and so, I, you know, I, I don't have anything against it. I think it's interesting. I think the data is interesting, and I think um, if somebody – can do that and it you know it produces some results and they can stick with it you know healthy humans can tolerate that kind of thing is it a a long-term solution i would say for most people i don't think so because i don't think it's that sustainable um, approach that people need to learn to live with so you know modifying your diet and lifestyle to manage pcos really is about changing your default way of interacting with food and activity in your lifestyle in a way that you can live with um, not, you know, temporarily for a period of time, as long as your enthusiasm and your um, willpower hold out, because we, we know by, you know, genetic phenotype, human beings don't possess a lot of willpower when it comes to food. Um, it was never favorable for human survival. So, you know, we need to... Yeah, I thought that was an, an interesting part of the book, because you're right, we are, there's an evolutionary thing in here, too. Evolution plays a role here, how we are how we're constructed and, and our need for food. It's a, uh, and, and you have to acknowledge that when you're any type of eating style, uh, be it a diet or whatever you are listening I to. Think it's a criti- okay. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's critical to the conversation for people to understand this is why your body does what it does. And it helps people to, to maybe hate their body less and kind of appreciate it and learn to work with its genetic potential as opposed to against it. Absolutely, yeah. That because uh, hating uh, is ca- is counterproductive. Hating your body is counterproductive uh, to weight loss, to conception, to anything. Uh, yeah, I would agree. You are listening to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We are so glad to have you with us today. When we're talking about the PCOS diet plan, we primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We have two weekly newsletters, one for infertility and one for adoption. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility or adoption, depending on which one you sign up for the one you want, or or you can sign up for both. Uh, We also tell you about the upcoming week's blog topic, uh, as well as show topic. You can uh, submit questions in advance to be asked on air for the show. Uh, We'd love to have you on our weekly newsletter. The easiest way to sign up is go to our website, creatingafamily.org, and go to the top right of every page, and it is there. And just sign up, put your email in, and you will be on our list. Uh, 
Um, let's talk a little about the importance of fiber. Uh, you, you, you hinted at it when you were talking about your preference for, I think you called it higher quality carbohydrates. Uh, is, is the advantage of higher quality carbohydrates because of the fiber? And then thus is the importance of fiber because it makes you feel more full or does it have other impacts as well? Well, there's many, there's many benefits. So first of all, if a food has retained its fiber content, so I'm not talking about a processed food that's had some fiber added to it. I'm talking about whole grains like whole wheat, oatmeal, quinoa, you know, buckwheat, bulgur, um, in the grain, you know, so those are the grain sources of fiber. And then, of course, fruits, vegetables, you know, beans are loaded with it. Um, nuts and seeds, nut butters, great sources of fiber. So from a digestive standpoint, dietary fiber is advantageous because human beings can't digest it. You have to be a ruminant animal like a cow or a goat and have four stomachs to actually take it apart and absorb it. So during digestion, the presence of dietary fiber um, can slow down the breakdown of the carbohydrates in the food to the release of glucose in the blood. So that it can have an effect on what we call the glycemic index or the GI. Um, but even beyond that, when you take a, a dietary fiber um, and you strip it out of a grain, say, so when you take whole wheat flour to white flour, brown rice to white rice, when you strip out the grain, uh, out the bran, which is the outside of the um, grain that has the fiber in it, they also remove the germ. And the germ is the part of a grain that's like the seed of that grain. So if it falls to the ground, it'll grow another blade of wheat or whatever. Um, the germ is where all the healthy nutrients are. That's where the vitamins and the minerals are. It's where the you know, thousands of phytonutrients that we know that are in plant foods, these are just health-promoting chemicals that act as natural anti-inflammatories, natural antioxidants, natural detoxifiers. You know, the, that germ of that grain is the p- nutritional powerhouse of that food. So when you strip out the fiber, they also strip out the germ now really what you have left is just a highly absorbable form of carbohydrate that is more likely to spike your blood sugars. So a diet that's higher in fiber tends to be um, reflective of a diet that's higher in plant foods. And that's really, I mean, when honestly, when it comes to disease risk reduction of anything that you can come up with these days, more of a plant-based whole foods diet is where all roads lead to ultimately. Um, <laughs> I find clients... You know, I can get people to experiment now with whole wheat pasta and brown rice and such. Um, I really push people to challenge their preconceptions of what they will eat when it comes to fruits and vegetables because really so much, you have to eat something to fill up on when you're trying to control your calories, when you're trying to control your more concentrated carbohydrate sources. And many people in my experience decide quite young that they don't eat certain things. So I always tell people, if you're still alive and walking this planet, you're not too old to to try something new, to try a fruit or a vegetable prepared differently, cooked differently, included in something else, all with the goal of getting people onto a more whole foods, higher fiber diet because it's going to be more nutrient dense and it's going to help to get those blood sugars and insulin levels to roll like hills over the day as opposed to spiking and troughing like mountains and valleys, which we know is so um, unhealthy for insulin resistance. I was, you just mentioned uh, the glycemic index. 
what is the glycemic index and 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 do we really need to worry about that if we're focusing on just lots of fruits and vegetables and more uh complex carbohydrates you know the whole grains is that enough or do we also need to think in terms of this glycemic index so I think it's helpful to talk a minute about where does the glycemic index come from. So it originated with some researchers that were interested in trying to figure out how do certain types of dietary carbohydrates affect your blood sugar levels. So and they so they compared how fast a 50 gram portion of different kinds of carbohydrate containing foods raised your blood sugar, you know, in the hour after you eat them. And they were comparing them to kind of the holy grail of things that will really raise your blood sugar, one being glucose, you know, the, the goop that people drink who've ever had a glucose tolerance test, or basically Wonder Bread, you know, very highly digestible white bread. So if, if these foods have a glycemic index of 100, um, and then you eat a 50-gram portion of brown rice, and it raises your blood sugar 55% as, high, as fast as Wonder Bread, then they'll say brown rice has a GI of 55 but when you take a step back from that and you say, okay, well, what does 50 grams of carbohydrate look like? There are some foods that we can easily eat a 50-gram portion. So if you get a big deli bagel, that's probably 55 grams of carbohydrate. Um, the people they tested, um, I should say, were not diabetic, and they had been fasting overnight. So they would just have them wake up and eat 50 grams of carbohydrate and then test their blood sugar. Um, the interesting thing, though, is there's some bad information that came out of that because many people looking rawly at the GI would say, you know what, you can't eat carrots and you can't eat watermelon. Yeah. Their GI is too high. And so what is important to remember is that to get 50 grams of carbohydrate worth of carrots, you have to eat a pound and a half. That's like a bag and a half of carrots. I've never in 25 years seen anybody get up and eat a bag of carrots for breakfast. You know, maybe a horse, but not a human. Um, so <laughs> Harvard School of Nutrition came out with this um, other system called the glycemic load, which is the GI of a food times a usual portion equals the glycemic load. And when you do that, you get very reasonable numbers on things like carrots and, and watermelon. So to your question, um, I think to focus on another set of numbers can be helpful to some people, but overwhelming to others. The way I encourage it in my book and with my clients is to say, listen, if you take a carbohydrate from nature, like whole grain to white flour, um, you know, corn to high fructose corn syrup, you know, even a whole fruit to juice. When you process a carbohydrate prior to eating it, it's like it pre-digests it. There's that much less work that your body has to do on the inside to finish off the process and raise your blood sugar. So again, if people go more towards the whole foods, it really experiment more with these whole grains, these alternative grains that are much easier to come by than they used to be. In the old days, we had to go to a food co-op to get them. Now they're everywhere. You know, really start experimenting with these things um, and really get serious about cutting out the refined carbohydrates and the processed carbs. I mean, soda is so toxic for anyone with insulin resistance, women with PCOS included. Um, white flour, processed foods, sweets, they just constantly jack up your blood sugar and your insulin levels in a way that can make it near impossible to lose weight because, um, to the doctor's point, Insulin does a lot of things, but it also makes, you know, not only does it make people hungry, it makes them store energy, particularly in your belly. So if your insulin levels are constantly jacked up because you're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates throughout the day, that means you have a lot of circulating insulin that not only is storing fat in your fat stores, particularly in your belly, that dreaded belly fat, it actually stands outside your belly fat like a guard and says, I'm keeping it. You can't have it. So 
many women find unconventional, whatever diet they've taken on, if it doesn't additionally manage your insulin levels, you may have trouble losing weight. So again, it goes back to my original point of let's dress this up in a different outfit. Let's talk about managing insulin resistance and the weight loss should follow as opposed to pulling out everybody's baggage about weight loss. You know, it's like we all have a closet in our brain of what immediately comes tumbling out when you start saying diet and exercise. You know, let's just change the dialogue. I think it makes a big difference. Does a woman's diet recommendations change if her main goal is to get pregnant versus, you know, long-term health? Is there anything that you're saying that you would do different for, does she need to lose weight quicker, for instance? I'm not necessarily speaking about, you know, increasing folic acid and things like that. I mean, for if her goal is to get pregnant, would you change anything that, that you have just said, if that's her primary goal? I actually wouldn't. What I would do, though, is I, I'm a strong advocate for educating women with PCOS way before they want to try to conceive so they can get on the weight loss path a lot sooner. Unfortunately, many women with PCOS aren't diagnosed with the condition until they've been trying to conceive and it's not happening. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I don't advocate for people trying to lose weight rapidly. I can think of at least one study that was terminated early where they took women who were obese, put them on a very low calorie diet prior to IVF, and the study was terminated early because the women with the rapid weight loss were actually less likely to be successful with the IVF. So we have to be very careful about, you know, part of setting the stage for pregnancy and and optimizing fertility is to tell your body that this is a good place to be pregnant. So if um, a woman with PCOS or just an overweight woman in general is, is plans on conceiving, if you take your calories, you know, from a high, maybe higher than most people need, and take them way down low, you know, that could be the, the equivalent of, of our primitive ancestors experiencing a drought or a famine where, you know, the food went from here to there. You know, now the food supply, the energy supply doesn't, you know, maybe doesn't look that optimal for reproduction. So there, again, it's it's finding that mid-ground, but again, trying to find a place. You know, in a perfect world, we would get on the weight loss sooner, um, and, and, it, and it does often come up uh, right in the throes of a fertility workup, which unfortunately does add a lot of stress to something that is already pretty grueling. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's not that people don't know that they have some of the symptoms because they did, and they certainly likely, if they're overweight, knew that, duh. But uh, it's often, as far as uh, a definitive diagnosis, it doesn't happen until people uh, are actively seeking, and quite often it's not until they get to a reproductive endocrinologist. You are listening to Creating a Family, and today we're talking about the PCOS diet. I'd like to take a moment to thank a few more of our goal sponsors and to remind you that it is through their very generous support that we can bring you this show, as well as all the resources we provide at Creating a Family. And we do have a lot of resources uh, on our website on PCOS, so I recommend that you go there. We have Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They are pioneers in offering the embryo in offering embryo donation and adoption services to clients throughout the world through their Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. They recently celebrated the birth of their 400th baby. 
Hillary, before we, we leave, I think we should also talk about supplements. Um, I'm always a little wary on supplements. It seems like so often it's the, uh, it's, it's still feeding our mentality. If we can just take a pill to cure something, it's the easy way out. However, uh, what type of, are, are supplements effective for helping women with uh, polycystic ovary syndrome? So, you know, there are, um, you know, different people. If you go online, you start to read about supplements, you will read a lot. The three that really come to mind in terms of, of really worth considering with a diagnosis of PCOS are vitamin D, fish oil, unless somebody is a big fatty fish eater, and then um, inositol. So we can hit on those one at a time. Vitamin D insufficiency or deficiency we know is very common. You know, anyone who lives above the latitude of Atlanta, Georgia, Los Angeles doesn't get enough year-round sun exposure, and if we wear sunscreen as we're encouraged to to reduce skin cancer rates that blocks vitamin D synthesis. We know that like most chronic diseases, there is an element of inflammation in PCOS and insulin resistance, and vitamin D acts as an, in part as a natural anti-inflammatory. So there is some research that suggests that having uh, adequate vitamin D levels may help with insulin resistance and some other aspects of PCOS. So it's really a matter of simply getting a vitamin D test through your primary care doctor or your reproductive endocrinologist and then supplementing as needed to get to a healthy level. So that how much vitamin D is needed will vary from person to person based on their own individual circumstances. Let me stop you there because I have a question. I have been reading that the that the research is not really supporting that that vitamin D or vitamin D3 supplementation is actually effective. I mean, I think that people are concerned about the the levels, but that yep. supplementation, because the other way you can get it is through sunlight. Um, have you been reading any of that research and, and kind of what's yeah. the current thinking on that? So my feeling about that, because I've read this the same, that, you know, it's basically people are supplementing based on research suggesting that low vitamin D levels may increase um, some health problems. So, you know, not just women with PCOS have other health concerns to consider, such as cancer risk, heart disease, and so forth. Um, so you're correct in that the studies don't consistently show that supplementation makes a difference, but because it's such an easy thing to correct, and it's really safe to try to correct vitamin D deficiency, Given that low levels appear to be potentially problematic, in my mind, it just makes good sense to try to correct it, again, to at least get to a normal level. So that's why we I don't blanket um, make recommendations for vitamin D without knowing what somebody's blood levels are. So it's sort of trying to level the playing field in case research down the road uh, shows more benefit. But what is clear is that human beings historically uh, had a lot more year-round skin exposure you know, we kind of evolved closer to the equator. So human bodies are supposed to have more vitamin D in them. So again, because it's 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 safe to vitamin D supplement, you know, within reasonable levels that I just feel like it's worth hedging your bets and correcting any deficiencies. What about the idea of just going outside for 15 minutes and trying to, to aim for 15 minutes of non-sunscreen exposure to the sun? Mm-hmm. That can certainly contribute to vitamin D levels during the times of year where sun, the sun is close enough to the earth to synthesize. So, for example, here in the northeast where we are, even if you're out in the sun in the winter, the sun is too far away to really synthesize a lot of vitamin D. So it could be yeah, that some okay. people do absolutely fine in the times of the year when the sun exposure is more common and that you know people in general – 
vitamin D levels tend to be lowest in March and highest in August. And clearly, you know, there's a tie in to sun exposure. Okay. All right. Now then you mentioned the other ones, fish oil. So, you know, in a perfect world, fish is a great healthy part of anyone's diet. And in theory, if someone eats, you know, eight to 12 ounces of fatty fish, like salmon, mackerel, sardines, uh, herring, you know, in the course of a week, they will get enough omega-3s, which are very anti-inflammatory. Because there is an inflammatory element to PCOS if someone is not a fish eater or doesn't prefer those fishy kind of fish that are higher in oil, they can take fish oil supplements. Again, we don't have a lot of research telling us that fish oil supplements, you know, improve fertility, correct insulin resistance, but if we look at it, you know, in total, fish oil supplements are generally considered safe for most people and that it's, uh, again, it's sort of a hedging your bets as we await more randomized control trials on the effect of, uh, you know, omega-3s. But, you know, in a perfect world, we would all eat more fish, which would be nice, but some people don't like it or can't afford it. Mm -hmm. Or don't know how to fix it. <laughs> yeah. All right. It, what was you know, Definitely a, a skill there. Um, yeah. The last supplement I wanted to mention is Ovos, is, uh, excuse me, is myo inositol. Uh, my Can you personal spell that? So, uh, and so the, the base compound is called inositol, I-N-O-S-I-T-O-L. So okay. inositol comes in different forms, the most common ones being myo-inositol, it's M-Y-O-inositol, or D-chiro-inositol, that's D-C-H-I-R-O. So in the body, the so inositol is something that, that we can get from food. It's found mostly in fruits, beans, grains, nuts, um, but it's also made by the human body. And inositol does have a role to play in um, enhancing the cell sensitivity to insulin and may help to regulate hormones. There's also been some research in women on PCOS looking at egg quality and inositol, and there seems to be you know something there. So... My personal preference is a product called Ovasitol. It's O-V-A-S-I-T-O-L, which is made by a company called Therologics. And the reason why I like this product is, is because it provides inositol in a 40 to 1 ratio of myo-inositol to d which is a ratio that's naturally present in the body. So this product comes in little packets. Each one contains 1,000 milligrams of myo-inositol, and 25 milligrams of D-chironositol that you're instructed to take twice a day. Um, it's in a powdered form, so it dissolves quickly. It really has no taste to it. And so it's one of those things that this 2,000 milligrams myo-inositol to 50 milligrams of D-chiro, some recent research suggests that that is more effective at promoting insulin sensitivity and helping to regulate hormones in women with PCOS. Okay, excellent. And what about, I mean, no, no discussion of lifestyle or diet is going to be complete without our favorite uh, exercise. So has there been any research that would indicate, I mean, we, you can lose weight through diet or exercise or through a combination. Uh, does it really matter if you, if you're losing the weight, is that what's important or uh, is, uh, has the research shown that exercise uh, has a separate benefit other than making it easier to lose weight? Yeah, yes. I mean, if we go back to the National Weight Control Registry, which we discussed earlier, mm -hmm. the vast majority of people who have lost weight and kept it off utilize both diet and exercise strategies. So 
exercise is important for weight loss. It's critical for maintenance of weight loss because not only does it burn calories, but it also helps you to maintain your muscle mass, and muscles are like big glucose sponges. So the more muscles people have, the more effectively they'll be able to clear glucose or blood sugar out of the blood. Um, but another interesting issue with uh, just looking at the issue of insulin resistance, so again, with or without PCOS, insulin resistance improves naturally with physical activity. So inside our cells are these, is this protein called glucose transporter 4, or GLUT4 for short. And so while the insulin unlocks the cells, this, this protein goes to the surface of the cell and kind of yanks the glucose out of the blood and into the cells, and the trigger for the release of glucose transporter protein is physical activity. So there are studies that have shown that even without weight loss, people who are pre-diabetic who start to exercise are less likely to go on to develop diabetes even if they don't lose weight. So as, you know, I you know that is uh, you know I, why years ago, you know, 100 years ago diabetes was considered a disease of the affluent because no one else, had, you know, could afford to have a life that included too many mm-hmm. calorie-rich foods and too little physical activity. So exercise is a really important component of sensitizing cells naturally to the action of insulin, which is really what it's all about. You know, PCOS is about trying to reduce circulating insulin levels because that excess insulin tends to aggravate the hormonal dysregulation that underlies this condition. So I don't consider it at all an optional part of managing a PCOS. Um, And that's, you know, setting aside the issue of physical activity helps you to mentally and physically feel so much better. You know, it's one of nature's most potent ways of managing fatigue and anxiety and and stress. So, you know, you could make the argument endlessly for including physical activity in the diet, and that would include, by the way, ideally at least two episodes of strengthening activity somewhere in the course of a week in addition to the cardio that women seem to be better at. It's the strengthening activity that we sometimes need more of a nudge that would certainly be the case with me. So, yes, I would agree with that. <laughs> Cardio is more fun. That's why. Uh, and I'm better at it. That's the second why. All right. Well, yes. thank you yes. so much for being our guest today, uh, Hillary Wright and Dr. Sunita Kolsresta, uh, for being uh, on our show today uh, at Creating a Family. To our audience, if you have enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate if you would give us a rating on iTunes. We are rated number one, and we would love to keep that rating. And, and iTunes uses the, um, uh, the the ratings. It's a star rating system. So you can uh, go to iTunes, uh, go to our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, and click on iTunes, and it will take you right to the, to the ratings. If you want to participate in a discussion of the topics of this show, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. To get more information uh, from uh, Hillary Wright, about Hillary Wright, you can go, actually, I, I didn't have this one now, but she has her own uh, website. Hillary, it is hillarywright.com. Is that correct? Yes, or PCOSdiet.com will get you to the same place. I also have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash PCOSdiet and a Twitter handle at PCOSdiet. 
perfect. Oh, that's great. Okay, well, make sure you follow us and we will follow you uh, because we also are all over uh, the, the social networks. You can also find her at the Domar Center, which is Domar, D-O-M-A-R, center.com. To uh, get more information about Dr. K, you can go to ShadyGroveFertility.com. That's ShadyGroveFertility.com, and you can get more information uh, about uh, Dr. K. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Paycor knows HR teams are under pressure to recruit and retain top talent. You need more than HR tech. You need expertise at the core. Meet Paycor. Our technology saves you time. Our expertise helps you make a difference. Paycor.com slash meet Paycor. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Moon. Yeah. That's Hugo tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-o! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.